At this time, let's turn our focus to the Word of God. Uh, Please open your Bibles to the final chapter of Jonah, chapter 4. And as you might have noticed, we have been going through Jonah at a rapid pace. We typically go very slowly through the book. Uh, This book, what we are doing is intentionally trying to get a big picture view of what God is doing through the story of Jonah. Today, we conclude our time with Jonah. But one of the interesting elements of this book is the way that it so cleanly divides into four almost equal pieces. It's kind of like a Kit Kat bar with the four, the four parts. It just neatly and cleanly breaks apart. So the first chapter takes place on the boat. The second chapter takes place inside the fish. The third chapter takes place within Nineveh. And the fourth chapter here is basically what we see with the heart of Jonah as he is st- sitting on a hillside outside of Nineveh looking at what the Lord is doing. So far, we've seen Jonah rebel against the Lord, and we have seen him run from his calling. And then Jonah spent that entire second chapter in prayer and repentance. And last time we saw him, he was a reluctant evangelist going to the people. But today we are going to see how Jonah responds to the result, to Nineveh's revival. So please follow along in your own copy of scriptures as we read together what happens at the conclusion of this story. This is the most important thing you will hear all day. This is God's word. He, uh, Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is the conclusion of the book of Jonah. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for this time that we have together to come around your word. Lord, we implore you today that you would be our help. We need you to understand and to apply rightly this text. And so, Father God, we ask you humbly that you would work in our hearts and in our minds to give us clarity and to give us wisdom and to give us the zeal to carry it out. So, Father God, I pray that in all of these things that we would see ourselves rightly as Jonah. And that we would see our deep need to repent. And Father God, I thank you that you are gracious and you are kind. And Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here who does not yet know you, who has not yet bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, your son, 
We pray, Lord, that today would be the day of their salvation, that there might be a revival within their own soul. Father God, I pray for mercy and grace upon them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The story that we've heard so far in this book is absolutely astounding. I mean, it's incredible what God has done. He has taken an entire city of roughly 600 to 800,000 people, and he has caused them to hear his word and to fear him and to repent. However, chapter four seems like a very bizarre place to conclude the story. It doesn't fit with the modern mold of storytelling at all. In fact, if this were made into a novel or a movie in today's world, this is the part that would be completely cut out. Why is that? Because we like happy endings with nicely tied bows at the very end where we see that everything worked out for everyone. So if this was a movie, it would end at the very end of chapter three when everybody seems to be repenting. Jonah, sure, he got it wrong at first, but now he got it right and he went back and everybody's happy and everybody's trusting the Lord and Jonah's the hero. But Jonah's not the hero in this book. And we are given chapter four because we are told that Jonah is not the primary focus of attention. He is not the one who we are to look to and emulate. He is the reluctant, uh, reluctant missionary and he's victorious, but he is still deeply sinful. Chapter four is a very unusual chapter, uh, but it's also very important because it gets to the heart of Jonah. And in doing so, it helps us to understand all of the problems with his worldview. It tells us about the depth of his sin and in the hope of this morning's sermon, we hope that we will see in Jonah what we see in ourselves, that we will acknowledge how we need the grace of God in our own lives. So in order to help our thinking this morning through this text, what I've done is I've quite simply used six if-then statements to help us think through what God is doing here. So the first one is this. If you are angry with God, then you are the problem. As we read this chapter together, you may have thought to yourself, man, this guy Jonah is awful. I mean, first of all, he's super dramatic and he's whiny and he's a spoiled brat. And if you thought that, you're right. You're absolutely correct. Just like the Grinch who stole Christmas, he sat atop his perch, looking down at the city, upset at all these who's who are happy now because they have found joy. Their hope brought him sorrow and anger. And we see that the very first verse, it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Now the question is, what exactly is it that displeased Jonah? Backtrack just a few centimeters into chapter three and you will see that what bothered him so deeply was that God spared the lives of the Assyrians. He did not bring disaster. And Jonah is infuriated that God has seemingly showed love to the very people that Jonah perceives to be his greatest enemies. So he prays a prayer, but notice that this prayer in verse two is a prayer of accusation. He prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now there's a very important question that the Lord asks Jonah he asks him twice in this chapter. It's a very calm and simple response. He just says, do you do well to be angry? Eventually, Jonah answers this in a fit of rage and says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Well, Sinclair Ferguson, I think, rightly refers to this well. He says, this is spiritual infantile regression. This man of God begins acting like a small child. Do you see how odd his accusation is? It's almost comical. Now, imagine for a moment, this is kind of what it's like. You go shopping and you're at Stop and Shop 
moving through the aisles at a nice pace, and then all of a sudden, somebody that you haven't seen for a while sees you from across the store, and they yell, you! And they begin marching in your direction with all deliberate speed, and then they, they reach you, and they put their finger right in your face, and they pull their mask down and start yelling at you, you, you disgust me! What is wrong with you? And now there's a crowd gathering, everybody's circling around you, thinking, oh my goodness, there's going to be a fight. Do we need to step in here? I don't know if I should even touch those people. What about COVID restrictions? How does that apply to this situation? And everybody's panicking, and then they start accusing you and saying, you disgust me! You are so kind! and you are gracious, and you are loving, and you are forgiving, and you relent from disaster. How confused would everyone in that room be? What's wrong with this guy? Clearly now we know who's in the right and who's in the wrong, right? Everybody in the circle would immediately be, be able to decide, I know who to side with in this argument. And in the process, everyone's probably looking around wondering where in the world is the camera? How am I being streamed onto YouTube or Facebook right now? Because I know that this can't be happening. Who in their right mind would accuse somebody of being kind or gracious? What's wrong with that? This outburst of Jonah reveals just how unlike God Jonah really was. He might have been outwardly obedient he followed with his feet the direction God told him to go, but his heart was aggressively opposed to God's calling and God's command and God's character. He was angry and absolutely opposed to any reconciliation or forgiveness. He had no place in his theology for these people to repent. So our first if-then statement, as it implies, we need to get this straight right from the beginning. If you are angry at God for any reason, you are the problem. Because God is always operating out of a perfect framework of his absolutely holy attributes. Everything he does is good and righteous. Everything that he carries out in his plan is supposed to be working for the good of his people. And so when we accuse God, we are undermining him. We are declaring everything that you have done that you say is good, I say is evil. In fact, the word that Jonah uses here when it says that he I was angry at God, one of the words it uses is the word evil. It's a word that's been used twice already in the book of Jonah and in the ESV is translated as evil. In other words, he views God's actions not only as frustrating, but as satanic. He says that is an evil thing you are doing, God. So when we come to what we see in Jonah, it's obvious he's got this backwards. Of course, God is right and Jonah is wrong. But it's easy for us to say that from our position here when we get most of the things that we want. But what about when COVID continues on longer than you like or when a friend of yours is not recovering as you pray for them in the hospital? What about those times when you don't get what you want in life? It is easy to fall into the trap of Jonah and begin to declare God is not good because he is not doing what I want him to do. And in Jonah's case, it's easy to see why he would think this. Because these are the bad guys. These are the worst guys in the world. And God is choosing to save them. And at the same time, not only that, God is not choosing to send revival to Israel. Here Jonah is frustrated and bitter, but of course we see that he is wrong. But in our hearts, we need to recognize in the same sense that God is always good. He is always loving. He is always holy. His justice is always at the right time. And he is always providing in accordance with his perfect purposes. So yes, if you are angry with God, you are the problem. Here's our second if-then statement for the morning. If you acknowledge your own guilt, 
then you will be able to show grace. Now, remember who Jonah is, right? This is Jonah. This is the guy who was told to go, and he went the opposite direction. He hired a ship to take him, as it says in chapter 1, away from the presence of the Lord. He wanted to get away from God. This is the same guy who begged God for mercy back in chapter 2. This is the same guy who was spared from death in such a miraculous and spectacular way that it has become legendary even among pagans. This is the guy who is now telling God who he can and cannot forgive. Someone thinks that he has the right to dictate who is worthy of heaven. Jonah says, no, 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 not those guys, God. Sure, it's right for you to show mercy to me, but not those guys. Brothers and sisters, he who has been forgiven much loves much. Steve Schultz often says, when we're counseling people, he will say that you are only able to forgive insofar as you realize that you yourself have been forgiven. Your attitude is dramatically different in a courtroom depending on which side you're sitting. If you are on the side of the culprit, of course you beg for mercy. But when you are innocent and you believe that yourself to be innocent, you, you see that you are the victim, then you cry for justice. But we have to recognize we are all the culprit. We are all in desperate need of repentance and mercy. So who is it that you struggle to care about? Who is it that you are bitter about? Who is it that you find hatred welling up in your heart against them? That is a natural part of the human experience. We find the other and we, we build walls and we begin to display hatred. Is it a different age group than you? Is it a different race than you? Is it somebody in a different political party than you? Is your heart inclined to pray for and evangelize people who sharply disagree with you about the direction of our country? I have found that over the last year, this has been the biggest area of need in the hearts of so many believers I know, including myself, that we can so quickly come to be bitter at those people who disagree with us in terms of the direction of our nation that we fail to see their eternal need as greater than their temporary need. We have to learn here from the example of Jonah. This is a negative example that we should see and respond against. He is the grinchiest of all the prophets, but it's not because his heart was two sizes too small, but because his heart was filled with nationalistic pride. He hated his enemies so much that all he wanted was to see them get destroyed. So what did he do? He sat on his perch up in that booth on the hillside, waiting for God to rain down a firework display even more powerful than the one that occurred at Sodom and Gomorrah. He wanted to dance and laugh as men and women and children were absolutely obliterated in fire and brimstone. And when that doesn't happen, when that doesn't happen, Jonah is furious. I'm currently reading a book um, about World War II, about some of the atrocities that took place in the Pacific region of the world, in the Pacific theater some of the most brutal and vile things that I have ever heard that took place during the war. It is absolutely disgusting. That's what the Assyrians were like. I get why Jonah sees their evil and is disturbed. But Jonah is furious because God is merciful. Jesus tells us that genuine disciples will love their enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That will never happen when you view yourself as righteous or when you view yourself as the center of the universe. It's only when you recognize that you have sinned against a holy God and that he must forgive you. 
when you realize that whatever people have done to you does not even compare to what you have done against God, only then will you be able to honor and love and serve God rightly by honoring and loving and having compassion on those who don't know or follow him. Your actions against God are far more egregious than anything anyone has ever done to you. And when you realize that, it humbles us and helps us to see that God is indeed merciful. So if you acknowledge your sin, then you will be able to show grace. Here's our third if-then statement for the morning, which is this. If you think of repentance as a one-time event, then you will never grow as a Christian. We see the melodramatic side of Jonah come out here in verse three. It says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it's better for me to die than to live. Now, why does Jonah want to die? Now, first of all, don't you find it strange that when Jonah was literally moving through the digestional track of a fish, he doesn't ask for God to let him die. But now, when his enemies repent, now he asks to die. He, he didn't give up in those dark moments in the fish. When he prayed to God, he didn't say, Lord, this darkness and distress is just too much for me to bear. Please take my life from me. No, the more I learn about Jonah, the more I think this guy was super tough. He was absolutely unmovable in his beliefs. He must have been the most incredibly strong-willed child that any parent has ever raised because it takes him three days to even turn his eyes toward heaven while he's being digested. He was probably trained by Elijah and Elisha, after all. This guy is a tough guy. But now, after surviving the most extreme encounter with an animal that probably anyone has ever experienced in the history of the world, now Jonah gives up on life. Now he demands that God kill him right then and there. He can't go on living. Why not? Because God had a chance to wipe out his enemies, and God didn't take it. God refused to do it. It is a good thing that I'm not God, and it's definitely a good thing that none of us in this room are either. It is a good thing that God is God. Because if any of us were in God's place, you know what we would do when Jonah says, just kill me, God? <laughs> it's over. Fine, if that's what you want, I will. We just put you out of your misery, Jonah. It's a good thing that we're not God. Verse four says, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? What a gracious response. God is not only gracious to the Assyrians, he is still being gracious to Jonah. And he says, do you do well to be angry? Jonah does not answer God here at the beginning, but I, I, I think he knows that he's wrong. I think he knows that it's wrong, but he's not ready to admit it yet. So what does he do? He makes a booth for himself on that hillside and he sat under it to wait and see if God would ever judge the city. First of all, I don't think he's a very good architect because it says that even while he's in the booth, the sun is still beating down on him. It's still burning him. So clearly he's not good as a builder. He should keep his job as a prophet. Uh, there's probably a metaphor in there somewhere. Uh, but God is going to continue to use nature as a way of training Jonah and to lead him to a point of a deeper level of understanding about the true character and nature of his own heart. This question that God asks him, it's very simple. God doesn't say much here. It's a very simple question. Do you do well to be angry? But in that simple, seemingly simple question, there is such a deep reality that Jonah now should see how self-centered he is being, how arrogant he is being. This one brilliant question reveals so much of the vile and disgusting hatred that is still in his heart. Sure, he walked all the way to, to Nineveh, but his heart is still back in Jerusalem and his heart has still not honored the Lord. So here's the question. Didn't Jonah already repent back in chapter two? I mean, 
it's a beautiful prayer. Didn't Jonah seek forgiveness for his sin? Or was that invalid? Was that fake? Was that just external? If it was external, why did God listen to him? Well, I believe, of course, Jonah did repent when he was in the fish. Of course, Jonah really did call out to the Lord. Of course, he did turn his direction in the proper, toward the east as he was supposed to go. Uh, But repentance begins when you first trust the Lord. Repentance begins when you hear the gospel, you realize you are a desperate sinner, you realize that you are a raw pagan, you realize that you are far from God, you realize that you deserve wrath, and you repent and you turn and you turn to Christ. That is the beginning of repentance, but it continues throughout the remainder of your life. Yesterday's repentance is for yesterday's sins. The fact is, the closer you get to the Lord, the more his light is going to reveal ongoing issues of sin and darkness that still exist in your heart. The more that you are able to behold the glory of God, the more you're going to see how far you fall short. Now, Jonah knew that he needed to repent of his actions, but he seemed not yet to understand that he also has to repent of his attitude. God is never, ever simply interested in outward conformity. Just ask the Pharisees. They were great at outward conformity. But consider Matthew chapter 23 in the chapter of seven woes where Jesus calls them out on the carpet and he calls them hypocrites. This word is literally actor who wears a mask. Sure, you can dress up nice. You can paint your face to look like you're a follower of of the Lord, but you're not. You're just acting. Jonah was just acting. He was going through the motions. His heart needed a complete overhaul. And because God is so gracious, he does not leave Jonah to wallow in that hatred and bitterness. He used various means, using nature especially, to reveal just how shallow Jonah's faith actually is. So here's my question for you. When was the last time that you acknowledged a pattern of sin and specifically repented of that? When was the last time that you said something to someone that was dishonest or that was unkind or that was gossip and then you realized that you felt convicted about that and you went back to them and you told them that it's something that dishonored God and it was, it was a sin against you. Will you please forgive me? And you repented. When was the last time that you sinned in some way that nobody knew about and all things being equal in this lifetime, nobody would ever find out about it? But the Lord knew. And the Lord saw, and you felt the fear of the Lord come over you, and you were convicted of your sin, and you felt your heart heavy, and you you turned to the Lord and said, God, please cleanse me of this. And you found uh, accountability for that sin. When was the last time? This is how God conforms us into the image of his son. He does it through ongoing, consistent patterns of repentance. He systematically chips away at all the things that don't conform us to his perfect nature. Uh, Jordan earlier was speaking from John chapter 15 about abiding in Christ. One of the parts of that passage that Jesus gives is he talks about the vine and the branches and how those who abide in him remain in him. Those are the ones he prunes. He cuts away pieces. That is a very uncomfortable metaphor. It's the idea that God is going to come and cut parts out of your life. He is going to remove things in a way that seems to be painful. It is the cutting off of those actions and attitudes that dishonor the Lord. If you think of repentance as a one-time event, then you will never grow. Here's our fourth if-then statement for the morning, which is this. If you only find joy in the gift, then you dishonor the giver. Verse six says this. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad 
because of the plant. Now, we can't know this for sure, but it has been suggested by scholars that Jonah's skin was probably still raw because of what occurred in the digestion process of that fish. He was probably covered in either sores or his skin would have been bleached white and would have been experiencing a great amount of radiation that normally would be blocked by your skin. And so here we see that he is more uncomfortable than somebody usually would be in this very hot Iraqi sun. It's very likely that he would have had lifelong sensitivity to that kind of exposure. But beyond that, we see that the heat was extreme over him. And the wording here is interesting to me because one of the words for extremity is the most powerful and extreme emphatic language that the Hebrew can employ. And do you know where it uses that? That he was exceedingly glad. That is the most emphatic statement in this chapter. He was exceedingly glad. He was so happy because of a plant. He was probably humming to himself. He laid back. He relaxed. For the first time, he's got some level of comfort and happiness for the last bit of his trip. And it's just because of the big leaves of this giant plant. Verse 7 says, But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Several years ago, I purchased a lemon tree uh, for two reasons. One, because I saw that Marco had one. And I was like, wow, that's awesome. And I loved it. And then I went to Home Depot, which was just opening over here uh, by my house. And uh, they had some kind of a storm where they had not yet moved their stuff inside. So a lot of things got wet, including some of the plants. But plants are supposed to get wet. Like, it's fine. So the only thing that's wrong with this lemon tree is that the sign is falling off of it. But it was marked down 90%, so I thought, oh, that's a good idea. So I purchased a lemon tree, and I, I loved my lemon tree. And I would put my lemon tree inside in the winter, and I would put it outside in the summer, and I would take care of it, and I would prune it. And I even bought this special kind of citrus fertilizer for it, and I cared about this lemon tree. And I worked really hard to make this lemon tree grow. And it was doing great. And then, for some reason that I can't comprehend, one day I walked outside, and all of the leaves were starting to curl and turn yellow. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe it's too much sun. Maybe it should come inside. So I brought it inside. And then I thought, well, maybe it just needs some water. And so I gave it a little more water. And that definitely didn't work because the next day all the leaves had fallen off and the tree was definitely dead. Well, I was actually sad when that happened. I don't know why, but I got invested in this plant and then it broke my heart when it died. And I was actually very sad to see it go. Jonah, he couldn't find joy in anything but his plant. I mean, this was not just an extra thing that he had. This was it for him. This was the one thing that gave him joy. It was the only thing in his entire life that made him smile. From his perspective, everything else in life was miserable. Now, can you imagine how bummed he must have been when he woke up and he crawled out of his little booth only to find the plant was completely shriveled and all those leaves were falling off? Now, have you ever heard the story of the very hungry caterpillar? This is the origin story. Uh, well, clearly, this, this bug must have been quite intense, and I wonder if Jonah found it. Clearly, he knew what happened. Maybe he just saw the results. Maybe he just saw the, that there were bite marks in this leafy plant, but perhaps he actually found it. And can you imagine the amount of wrath he would pour out on that poor creature if he did? In this, we see just how small Jonah's perspective of life truly is. All he can think about is earthly possession. He doesn't thank God for it. He doesn't recognize that it's from the kindness of his father's hand. 
look, I, I realize you don't have a plant and you think this is silly. I get that. But you do have a bank account and you do have a place to stay and you do have a car and you do have a retirement plan and you do have a family. And it's really easy to make the assumption in your mind that the reason you have those things is because you deserve them or because you have earned them. You imagine that you have received all that you have because of your own hard work or because of your own intelligence or because of some mixture of other categories that you find that you have excelled. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Literally everything that you have is a gift from God. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no shadow of turning. Whether you acknowledge this or not, everything that you have, everything that you have, and I do mean everything, including your mind and your actions, your abilities, your strength, all the things that you have are a gift to you from God. Your very health exists because God is sustaining your life. The fact that we recover from any sickness or have the ability to fight off any germs is the mercy of God. The curse was sent to bring death. And the fact that God allows us to continue living at all is his immense kindness. Our family right now is reading through the Bible in a year, as many of you are. And uh, if you haven't started and you want to jump on board, literally today's the last day that we're going to be in Leviticus, and tomorrow we are starting Hebrews. That would be a great place to start. If you want to know more about the Bible reading plan and you want to just uh, begin to commit to that, please jump in with us tomorrow, starting in Hebrews. But as we've been reading through that, I was struck um, uh, by the book of Exodus. And I, I know that um, you were reading through the book of Exodus as well, many of you, but... Um, can you imagine how frustrating that would have been for Moses when uh, so many of you told me, like, I, I just looked at these guys and thought, what, an, what a ridiculous thing to say. When they leave Egypt, God parts the Red Sea, and then the people go through on dry land, and then God covers up all their enemies and destroys the army that's against them. And they come across, and they sing that beautiful song, the first song in the Bible, declaring God's great love in his protection, that the Lord is a warrior, he fights on our behalf. And then the next thing they say is, why did you bring us out here, Moses? Why did you bring us out here to die? I mean, the water's bad. There's no food. And God literally starts sending food out of the sky that they don't have to work for. They literally just go outside and pick it up. And all they can say is, well, back in Egypt, at least we had leeks and onions. What's wrong with these people? What is wrong with them? Well, notice that they are unthankful, ungrateful people. And if you want to do a word study in the Bible, look up the word Thanksgiving and just trace through how that is at the core of every kind of sin. An ungratefulness for what God has actually given is at the core of everything that we do. It is a part of the depths of pride in our heart where we think we are deserving of something that God has not given. We have great cause for thanksgiving, even if God were to take away everything from us. Listen, if you lost that bank account and that car and that retirement plan and all of those things, you have Jesus. What can man do to me? We have hope that transcends earthly needs. But when the Lord permits us to have good things, good creation, those good gifts, let's give thanks. Let every blessing turn your attention back to heaven. Let us never imagine that we are the cause or we are the beginning or end of our goodness and the good gifts that we have. If, the only, if you only find joy in the gift, then you will dishonor the giver. This is clearly related to point number five, which is if you only treasure comfort, then you will always fail to value eternal things. 
verse 8 says, When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Once again, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant? For which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Just side note here, that 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left, that's not just saying that they're unintelligent or that there's something problematic with their education. That's an ancient way of speaking about people who are children. He's saying there are 120,000 children down there. You want me to kill them? We are short-sighted people. We have a tendency to set our attention so firmly on what makes us feel good. Jonah was more interested in an ancient form of sunblock than he was in the hundreds of thousands of people whose eternal destiny was on the line. The church in America has become very comfortable, maybe too comfortable. We have become blessed with so many good gifts that we have forgotten how to be uncomfortable. One of the best things for my soul is to make sure that I am regularly reading missionary biographies and reading what the Lord has done through people who have gone to the front lines of the mission field to see how God has worked through people who have gone in dramatic ways to carry the gospel where, it has, where Christ has not been named. That has been something constantly helpful to my soul. But I want to tell you that that's not the best way. That's not the best way to reset your attention here. The best way is to look at the greatest missionary, Jesus himself. If the Christian life is about having your best life now, look, Jesus did a terrible job of displaying that. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Of course, this wealth that he's referring to cannot be calculated by an analysis of your assets versus your liabilities. Jesus himself is our treasure. He is a gift of incomparable value. Of course, I've mentioned this before, but I will repeat that value is determined by scarcity. The more rare something is, the more valuable it is. If God were to give us anything else, literally anything else, then he could just make more. But he can't give us another Jesus. He can't give us more than he has given us. He has given us the one irreplaceable treasure of the universe, Christ himself. When Jonah was on that hillside, he was so focused on the pain of his body and the comfort that he desired that he could not see the bigger picture. The Christian life is designed with the long term in mind. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, We of all people are to be most pitied. In other words, if you're just living for this life, if you expect this to be your best life, you're in huge trouble because this life is not what we are living for. We are supposed to have the long view and focus. Every relationship, every goal, every endeavor in life is supposed to be lived out with Christ at the center, meaning that we are to bring everything back to the central reality that this, in this life, We are just at the beginning of our existence. Every person in this room will live forever somewhere. And the one difference between whether you spend eternity in heaven or in hell is what you do with Jesus Christ in this life now. So don't be like Jonah. 
Do not merely focus on the temporal comforts when the Lord gives them. Don't just complain about their absence when he takes them away. And don't just get excited when he gives them. List, uh, live every single day in light of eternity. And only then will you properly prioritize everything in your life. Just like Job, you should worship the Lord because he gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Here's our last if-then statement for the morning. If you are humbled, then your testimony will honor the Lord. Here's the question that we need to land on as we close this book. What happened to Jonah? I mean, really, this is a strange way to end a story. It is the only book of the Bible that ends with a question mark. Does Jonah ever repent? I think the book intentionally ends with this cliffhanger because God intends for us to see ourselves in Jonah. It's his desire that we put ourselves on that hillside as if we are operating like Jonah out of an attitude of self-superiority. And in so doing, we examine our own heart to come to repentance. But I think the book also gives us an answer in a more subtle way. Who wrote this book? Jonah is the author of the book of Jonah. And notice that as he is writing his autobiography, he does not pull any punches. He does not go easy on himself. He does not write about himself in a glowing way. He does not round off any edges or make any excuses for any of his actions. He literally writes himself as the bad guy at every turn. What does that indicate? It reveals that eventually Jonah learned humility. Now, I don't know if that occurred while he was still on that hillside. Or maybe, maybe he walked all the way back to Jerusalem. Maybe he lived years with that bitterness in his heart, but eventually God broke him and revealed to him just how wrong he was. Eventually God transformed his heart. And it can be really easy for us to sit here in our nice climate controlled room while it's snowing outside. It's nice and warm in here. And as we're sitting here in this room, it can be easy for us to look at Jonah and say, man, that guy is acting like a child. This guy's pathetic. This guy's, this guy's totally a loser. And we can condemn his actions when he runs away from the Lord. But as we've continually seen, the story of Jonah is played out in our lives as well, constantly. Now, I love to ask people about their testimony of salvation. One of the best blessings of the bunch lunch that we've been having at our church is that those people that I know, I've been able to ask them about, our, uh, about their testimonies and hear them again. And those people that I don't know from Gateway or from visiting here at the church. I've been able to ask their testimonies and learn about how God has worked in their lives as well. And it's evident that some people are much more clear when they share their testimonies than others. Some people have obviously thought through, how can I explain what God has done in my heart? And they're good at telling the story of how God has given them new birth. And others are clearly less structured and they're lacking theological language to explain what their, their salvation. But listen, Ultimately, that's not what makes a good or a bad testimony. Ultimately, what makes a good or a bad testimony is whether or not one recognizes that God himself is at the center. The best and most accurate testimonies are the ones where God gets all the glory because he has done all of the work. Now, you have probably heard testimonies like this before where somebody says, well, listen, look, I was in the Catholic church and I just started reading my Bible and I realized everyone else is wrong. All these people that I'm around, they're, they're, they get it wrong. And I just started to realize, I, I, I've got this figured out. And, I, 
And it's all about their intelligence. And now they start talking about how smart they are. And now they start talking about how I started getting into fights with people about this. And I was verbally better at arguing than they were. And I realized I was a superior communicator than they were. And clearly God has, uh, and it's all about them. It's all about them. And they never once mentioned that God is merciful. God is gracious. God sovereignly worked in my life. God is working to draw me and give me the gift of faith and repentance. And God is the one who sanctifies me. And if I stay in the faith, it's because God is working in me. And I know that he holds me fast. And I know that he will glorify me. Those are the best testimonies, regardless of whether or not people have the systematic theology or the language to explain it. Those people who recognize that God did this and I am unworthy, those are the ones who can give honor to the Lord in their testimony. Notice that in writing this book, Jonah gives God all the glory. He is not seeking to make himself into the hero. Jonah is fully aware that all of God's work in Nineveh was in spite of Jonah, not because of Jonah. When the Lord humbles you and brings you to a point of being able to see and say that the only reason that you can stand before the Lord is because of his infinite grace, then you can tell your story in a way that brings him the utmost glory. And that's where Jonah leaves us with God getting all of the glory. And so that's where we conclude this book. And Lord willing, that's where we continue in our lives to give God all of the glory for what he has done. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your wonderful grace. God, we thank you that even though our hearts have a tendency to be just like Jonah, we thank you that you continue to be just like we see you in this text. A God who is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to work in our lives to carry us. And just like Jonah, to continue to discipline us and correct us and graciously turn our hearts towards you. Lord, I pray that you would chip away at all of those things that make us more like Jonah and that you would chip away so that we would be more like Christ. God, we desire to run from those old ways and run to you. Help us to be compassionate like Jesus, the true shepherd of the sheep. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.